Hello, everybody. Hello. It's good to see you guys. My, so my, my name is Joel, um, I think. And, uh, man, it is good to be with you guys tonight. Um, uh, you know, the, the Mosaic at WDW campus has always just had just this really, really special place in my heart because over the years... Uh, since we've been doing this, how many years now, Danny? Eleven? Eleven. Wow, this is wild. Um, it's been so fun to just see um, how God has been at work uh, in and among uh, people who uh, work at Disney and other areas uh, uh, in, in this region of Orlando. And it's just really been uh, just an incredible privilege to see God at work. Uh, in so many different stories. And so I don't get to be out here as often uh, as I prefer. Um, we have, my wife and I, uh, we live uh, quite a bit north of here, and we have little ones at home, and typically a, a bedtime uh, uh, for us. But man, every time I get an opportunity uh, to come out here and be with you guys, it's just so encouraging uh, to me because I know. Uh, as we gather here every Sunday evening, that we get to be encouraged and stirred up and spurred on to go be the hands and feet uh, of Jesus uh, everywhere we find ourselves here, uh, especially on campus at, uh, uh, well, campus, but on property, I guess is what we say, uh, at Walt Disney World and then uh, wherever God has us. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful thing uh, to see. So uh, tonight we continue our journey through the book of Jude, which we've been walking through uh, together. And so I'm super excited to be able to be here uh, in this space. And as we walked through the book of Jude, we've been hearing from Danny, uh, the campus pastor here, as well as Brady has been here as well. Yeah. Uh, and and walking us through uh, the book of Jude. And so it's fun for me to, to step into this place. And it's, it's been interesting uh, to kind of hear the, the book of Jude taught um, from its beginning because uh, it really is this beautiful uh, reminder that is given to us of the incredible importance that the gospel has uh, in our lives and how important it is to uh, contend for the gospel and, 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 and recognizing that how we contend for the gospel uh, is we let it out of its cage like a lion. I love this image that we have uh, as we have jumped into the book of uh, Jude. And so it's going to be fun uh, to jump in together and, and just to kind of get a little bit familiar with one another because some of you guys are like, oh, wow, Joel's back. It's been a while and you remember me. But some of you guys are like, who in the world is this guy? And so I just want to give you a little bit of, uh, you know, a backstory of kind of the, the way that I approach teaching God's word. I love God's word. I love diving deeply into God's word. I love preaching God's word. But, you know, every person who preaches or teaches God's word kind of prepares a little bit differently. So I thought maybe I'd show you just a little bit like so if you look at kind of uh, maybe Brady White, for example, uh, his notes and he's really just like studious. Uh, he is just kind of, he's got highlights and he's got shapes and he's got colors. And he's just got all of these wonderful ways to break down a passage in scripture. And so when he teaches, he teaches in such a way that kind of illuminates all the things he's seeing in all those different colors, which is really, really uh, fun to experience. And then you have Danny, you know, Danny, and he's just like, he, every single sermon, he just reminds 
uh, uh, every time. He reminds us of some very important things like, you know, the tensions that are kind of uh, in, the, in the text and, and the central truth that the text is bringing to the table and God's character. Like every single week, we're thinking about God's character as Danny walks us through uh, a sermon. And it's, it's really, really fun. And then the way I prepare, I think you're going to really enjoy um, what we have tonight because um, I just prepare with a four-year-old sitting next to me coloring. And so that's uh, always a little bit hectic, always a little bit fun. Um, but I am, all joking aside, super excited for what God has uh, to bring to the table. In fact, it's good for you to know that at Mosaic, uh, we don't just kind of open the Bible and have one person just tell, it, tell us what it says. Instead, we in community and plurality, together we wrestle through with qualified men and women, we wrestle through the Word of God together and, and do our very best to try to ensure that we're seeing what is in the text so that we can bring it to the table week after week. So take, take a look at this. This is a, a, what we call a teaching brief. And we do this every single week uh, in our teaching team meeting together um, at the Winter Garden Campus as well as the Disney Campus teaching uh, uh, team and, and Danny especially in his role here. Um, we, we, we get together week after week and really dig into the passage together and, and seek as much as we can uh, to, to ensure that we're seeing what it is that that God has uh, in, in the text in store for us. Um, and this week was uh, just super fun because as we were digging in, this illustration came to the table. One of our, our pastors at, at Mosaic, his name is Kevin Dunn, uh, he brought this uh, illustration to the table. And I'm like, oh man, we have got, got, got to use that this week. And it is from the American classic movie, The Sandlot. Has anybody ever seen The Sandlot in this room? Just a show of hands. So we've got about 40, 45%, which I feel is like pretty good. You know, I feel good about that. So let me give you just a real quick snapshot of what the sand, sand lot is. This is like one of those like 90s movies. You know what I'm saying? It's just like classic, like a kid adventure, you know, uh, something goes very wrong and they're just trying to make it right throughout the whole movie. And that's like the basic premise of, I don't know how many blockbuster hits in the 90s. And the Sandlot is an absolute classic, but the basic premise of the movie is this uh, young man, Scotty Smalls, he's, uh, I don't know, 10 years old, what would you say, 10, 10-ish, uh, he, he uh, moves into this neighborhood, and he doesn't have any friends, and he wants friends desperately, and all the kids in this neighborhood, they kind of have formed this ragtag baseball team, and they go play uh, in this little baseball field that they call the Sandlot, uh, a very, very uh, informal little baseball field, and uh, they love baseball more than anything in life, and it's, it's just centered around this little neighborhood. Uh, and so Scotty, he just wants to break into this friendship group, and so he starts playing baseball, but he's really terrible at it. Uh, but he's kind of learning, and he's getting better. And uh, one day, uh, they, they run out of baseballs. So like, what are they going to do? And Scotty has a great idea. You know what? Uh, my stepdad, who's away on business, has this one baseball uh, in his office up on a mantle on a display shelf, I should go grab this baseball and bring it so that the, the, the friends will think I'm awesome, that I saved the day and I brought this baseball so that we could all keep playing baseball and the game would not have to end. So he brings the baseball and lo and behold, I mean, it's the moment of his life. Perfect little pitch, you know, kind of a hanging curveball. He sees it and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hits it, boom, right over the fence. Best moment of his life ever, except that there's something that goes very terribly wrong. And that's where we pick up on the scene. So take a look at this. Your dad is a doornail, 
Smalls. Smalls, you mean to tell me that you went home and swiped a ball that was signed by Babe Ruth, and you brought it out here and actually played with it? And actually played with it? Yeah. Yeah, but I was going to bring it back. But it was signed by Babe Ruth. Yeah. Yeah. You keep telling me that. Who is she? What? What? The Sultan of Swat. The King of Crash. The Colossus of Cloud. The Colossus of Cloud. Babe Ruth! The Great Bambino! You mean that's the same guy? Yes! yes. Smalls, Babe Ruth is the greatest baseball player that ever lived. I mean, people say he was less than a god, but more than a man. You know, like Hercules or something. That ball you just aced to the beast is worth, well, more than your whole life, man. I don't feel so good. Uh oh, fair. Let's watch it again. Um, but, you know, you gotta be sitting here thinking to yourself, okay, we're in the book of Jude. What in the world does the Sandlot have to do with the book of Jude? But, but really, this scene sets the perfect tone for kind of where we have come through and come to in this letter. And where we're at in this letter is that Jude is saying, listen, we have to contend for the gospel. The gospel is the most important thing in the world. There's nothing more important than the gospel. But the problem is, is that false teachers have entered into the church and have begun diluting and polluting and distorting the gospel with false teaching that is aimed to move these false teachers in a place of prominence within the community so that these false teachers will experience gain as a result. And what Jude has gone through in painstaking detail, he's walked us through Old Testament texts. He's walked us through respected extra biblical sources. He's quoted the apostles. Like he has walked us through this understanding that in order to contend for the gospel and to defend the gospel, we need to let it out of its cage. And that those who are distorting and, uh, and diluting um, the gospel through false teaching, they're in big, 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 big trouble. Like this is not a good place for them to be. And much like uh, little Scotty Smalls, uh, who in his desire to get in with his community, uh, made a really bad decision to take something that should be a very prized possession off of its rightful place, which is a trophy room, right? A, uh, a shelf that, that displays it in all of its splendor and wonder. And he's used it as if it's common. And he's done so and thus jeopardized the value of that baseball, of that object. And, and these false teachers, when they began to use the gospel, twist the gospel and shape the gospel for their own dishonest gain, they are treating the most precious thing in the universe for their own gain. And anyone who becomes aware to this fact, we should just like Smalls at the end, fall to our knees, sick to our stomach. And kind of the next thing they say after that scene cuts out is, we got to go get that ball. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in Jude, that Jude has helped us see how dangerous it is to be these false teachers and to treat the gospel with uh, contempt and to use the gospel as if it's common for their own gain. 
like as if it is some sort of uh, internet marketing tool. And here in this passage of Jude, Jude is going to turn our attention to say, okay, well, if that is what has gone on and this is the situation that these false teachers are in, then what should you and I do about it? And what Jude is going to do is to help us through this passage place the baseball back up onto the shelf where it belongs in a place of prominence, in a place on display where we can look at it and recognize it for what it is as well as show it to others. And so that's what Jude is going to talk about in these next few verses. He's going to talk about what it means uh, to center our lives on the gospel and how we can love God through that. And then how do we display the gospel to others and how do we love people through that? Ultimately, he's going to boil down the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's going to give us very practical ways to do that. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles together. Uh, Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter. Uh, Verse 20 is where we're going to pick up tonight. Um, If you have one of the blue Bibles that you grabbed on your way in, you can page all the way to the end of the book, uh, to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, and then kind of look one page over. In fact, if you go to Revelation, where we're at tonight is just a little bit higher than that on page 1128. Uh, If you're using a smart device, um, you can uh, look it up in the English Standard Version. That'll help you follow along. Uh, And if you've got your own Bible with you, again, just go to the book of Revelation and kind of look back. We're going to be in Jude, starting in verse 20 tonight. So Jude uh, 20 says this. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And... Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, starting off in verse 20, anytime you see like a but you, right, in, in, uh, in scriptures, you're kind of reading, that's a clue to kind of look back and recognize that like, okay, something's changing here. So he's been talking about a group of people up to this point. And who is that group? The false teachers. All the way up through this point, he's been talking about that group of people. And in verse 20, he makes a transition and he makes a shift. And he says, but you, beloved. So who's he talking to here? He's talking to followers of Jesus. He's talking to people who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation. So if you're here tonight, 2,000 years later, right, uh, and you're reading this and you are a person who has put your hope and trust in Jesus for salvation, this text is talking to you and it's talking to me. So tonight together, let's listen in on what Jude is going to call us into. And as he calls us in, he reminds us of who we are. So what does he say? But you, beloved, what a beautiful term. (laughs) Just like what a beautiful title that God gives us. Like we as followers of Jesus, are beloved by God. Like we live in a world that loves to assign value to other people based on a number of factors, right? Based on gifting, based on talent, based on looks, based on financial status, based on 
work titles, based on all sorts of different things, right? We love to assign value to other people and everybody kind of has a, a box in their head of what they think is valuable and they place that on other people. And what, what God is doing here through Jude is he's assigning value. He's saying, listen, simply by the very fact and nature of your trust in Jesus for salvation, you have a value that is not based on anything this world could offer, but it's based on God's character, God's nature, and what he has done for us. So we have to root ourselves in an understanding that ultimately the core of the gospel, the good news, I mean, the gospel is just simply a, a, a maybe a religious or biblical word for good news. And the good news is that even though there was bad news, which was that we as the human race have sinned and fallen short of the way that God designed us to be. And the bad news is that sin is something that separates us in our relationship from God. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, God gives a promise to Adam and Eve that if they live in trust of him and they eat of the fruit that he has given them to eat, that they'll live eternally in the garden with his presence available to them. But if they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which he commanded them not to eat, if they disobeyed God, if they decided they didn't want to trust him, but they wanted to choose their own way, their own knowledge of good and evil, they wanted to be their own source instead of God, that that would be a sin that would separate humanity from God. And everything that has taken place since then, every other sin roots from that original sin which is Adam and Eve simply saying, God, we don't want you to be our God. We want to be our own God. And everything that we've done as a human race that is negative, bad, ugly, terrible, hateful, hurtful, falls into this bucket of things that human beings do that we're not really created to do, that we're not made to do, that we're not intended or designed to do. And when we do the things that we're not made to do that are against God's ways, that is... We continue to sin. We continue to separate ourselves from God. And there's no hope for us in and of ourselves to bring back relationship with God, to restore it in and of ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to make it right on our own. We can say, we're sorry a hundred times. We can uh, do a lot of really nice things for other people that we can try to make amends in myriads of ways. But the reality is that when, when this relationship was broken between humanity and a righteous and holy God, God made a way for us to come back to him and his name is Jesus. So the good news is, is that Jesus came and lived and died for us, that he came to this earth, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a death on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God that, that our sin deserved, standing in our place, showing us what it meant to live a perfectly obedient life to his father, he was the perfect human being. He was fully God, truly God, and fully man, truly man. And he lived the life that you and I should have lived, but didn't. Anybody here lived a perfect life? No, me neither, right? But Jesus did. And the good news is, is that Jesus said, if you come to me, if, if you put your trust in me, I will give you eternal life. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whosoever... I love that word. Like what an intentionally redundant word. <laughs> like whoever, whosoever, right? Like just like 
anybody who you can imagine, whosoever believes in Jesus for salvation will not perish, but instead will have eternal life. And that's the good news. And, and there is this good news that we press into as people who are loved, as people who are loved so much that God sent his only son, Jesus, to die in our place, to resurrect from the dead, beating death so that we could have eternal life by faith in him. Like, that's awesome, right? I mean, I know I'm the one with the microphone, but y'all can get loud too, right? Like, it is awesome that Jesus did what he did for us. And it's good news. It's the best news. It's life-changing news. It's life-altering news. It's news that we can orient our life around. It's news that we can stake our life on, that we can base everything else upon, and that nothing that we could have done could have produced this good news. It's all what Jesus has done that produces this good news. And the result is that we are beloved. Man, we could like shut it down tonight. You know, like three word sermon, but you beloved, we're done, right? But he goes on, he says, building yourself up, yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So what is, it, what is he talking about here? What he's talking about here is that Unlike these false teachers who are utilizing the gospel to tear down the church, he's saying, no, instead, you build yourselves up. This is a communal word. This is not just individuals be building themselves up, but you together build yourselves up. That, that you build yourselves up rather than tearing down, you build yourselves up. How? In your most holy faith. This is looking at the beauty of this baseball that we have. This baseball that is signed by Babe Ruth. Who is she? The great Bambino. Like it's so good. Like the gospel is so good. It is so priceless. There's nothing better than it. Have you ever been to like a, a fundraiser? You go to like a silent auction, you know? And everybody's there and everybody's kind of looking at the price and it's, it starts off at an exorbitant price because it's a fundraiser, right? And you're like, ooh, movie passes, I'll pay $200, you know? But there's, like, there's always that one like, gift basket that's full of stuff that's like awesome and everyone wants it. And so it goes ham, it goes wild. And it's like, oh, it's for charity. And like, you know? And some of you are like, I have never been to an event like that. And I would say, I have been, but it's usually because I got invited by someone who paid for a table and allowed me to come, right? And I might have thrown my name on the cheapest item, but like right up at the top. And I'm like, okay, honey, can we put it in the budget? Okay, so just so you know, I'm a pastor. I'm in the same place you are, you know? But, but, but there's always that one really, really valuable item, this really incredible item that, 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 that people want, that, that people that people participate in and say, I want to, I want to get it. I want to, I want to jump in on it. And, and that, that moment, that experience of recognizing the value of something and saying like, I'll give whatever it takes to get it. Like, this is what it means to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. It means to take a look at this item and say, gosh, this item is so valuable. Like, what could I do to get that item? Jesus talked about it this way. One of the parables that he told is this person who walks by this field 
And he sees that in this field, there's this treasure. And he's like, wow, there's an incredible treasure in this field. And if only I can go buy the field and I'll do whatever I can do to, to scrounge up the money to be able to buy this field, because it's not really even the field that's valuable. I might be able to pay, I don't know, in today's money, $100,000 for a lot. If I spend $100,000 on this lot, and I mean, who can afford that anyway? But if I spend all of my money on this lot and there's a treasure on it, it's a great investment, right? And, and what it means to build yourselves up in your most holy faith is simply to look at the gospel and say, wow, there is so much value in the gospel. I got to do what I can to get more of it in my life. And it's not something we're paying for and it's not something that we're earning. It's something that we behold. Just like this Babe Ruth baseball that's up on the trophy case, it's something that we behold. It's something that we look at and we stare at and we say like, I want to know, like I want to see every facet of it. I want to know all about it. Why? Because it's so priceless. It's so valuable. It's worth more than our lives. It costs the very precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it's available to us every day to discover its beauty. Renaud, our lead pastor, frequently refers to the gospel as a hope diamond. Uh, the hope diamond is like the most gigantoid diamond that's ever existed. And they've got it like under like crazy lock and key and like uh, some wild laser beams that you would have to like be crazy to be able to get around, you know. You have to be real good at it uh, to steal this Hope Diamond. And it's never been done. So I guess, like, I don't know, maybe they might make a movie about it someday. Maybe. But this Hope Diamond is so big and so beautiful. And they shine lights on it. And, like, the room just, like, glimmers with all of its facets, right? And there, there, there's no end to how many facets there are in the beauty that shines off of this diamond. And that's really what the gospel is like. Like, my mom, she's 76 years old, and man, she is cute, okay? My mom is 76, about this tall, and uh, she's had a couple of falls and broken, she broke her femur, then a, a few years later, she broke uh, the same femur and her other knee as well, and so she's slower now, right? But that woman, man, her Bible, her Bible is used, like real used, and she goes through them like crazy, and she's just like, walks into our church on Wednesday morning and she's smiling all the time. She's like there for Bible study. She says hi to me. He's like, hi, Jolie. And like that woman, she just like rips through the word of God. You know, it's crazy. I'm 39 years old. I'll never forget. I was like 16. It's far from God, not pursuing Jesus. And every single morning, it would like annoy me, like annoy me. I did not love Jesus but every single morning, I'd be getting up for school like the latest I possibly could. And without fail, my mom sitting in the, in, in the family room, Bible open, cup of coffee. She probably spilled half of it on the Bible. So there's like coffee she like wiped off the page, you know. But every single morning, diving into the word of God. Like my mom, like Brady's little breakdown, like how he does his notes. My mom has her Bible just like tore up with all sorts of crazy notes and she just can't get enough of it. My mom, she's so funny. She live streams the Winter Garden Gathering on Sunday morning. Then she goes to her own church. Then she goes to Bible study. Like, my mom's crazy. She hosts a Bible study on Tuesday. She goes to Mosaics on Wednesday. And she can't get enough of it. And when I start talking with her about the gospel, she's just like tears. Just tears. Because what Jesus has done for her, like, he, she just knows. 
And I'm going to tell you, listen, I've known this lady a long time and I've never met a sinless person, but she's close. Okay. Like she's close. She's really godly, but she knows her need for Jesus. And she stares into the beauty of the gospel. And she does that every single day of her life. And it's precious to her. And what Jude is saying is like, hey, like, let the gospel be precious to you. Just let it be precious to you. Like, if you hear nothing else tonight, just like, hear that. Like, let the gospel be precious to you and see how it changes you from the inside out. It'll make you new. It'll make you different. It'll upend your life in all the good ways. So he says, build yourself up in your most holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit and, and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. So this idea of praying in the Holy Spirit, he connects the disciplines of prayer, the disciplines of, of uh, the faith, especially prayer, to what it means to build ourselves up in faith. That as we stare at the gospel and as we put it in its rightful place in our lives, we begin to engage with the gospel in such a way that builds us up and it leads us to taking our request, taking our prayer, taking our thanksgiving, taking our supplication, everything that we have to God. And what does it mean to pray in the spirit? Paul says in Ephesians, pray, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. What Paul is saying is that when we pray, we pray in the spirit. Like there is no other way to pray. Uh, there is no other option like, oh, can I pray in the flesh or should I pray in the spirit? No, like you're if, if you're a Christian and you're praying, you are praying in the spirit. The spirit of God within us cries out, Abba, Father. And so praying in the spirit is this, this uh, idea of like breathing with your lungs. <laughs> like there's no way to breathe without your lungs. And there's no way to pray without the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said, it's better for you that I go because when I go, I'm going to send to you a, a comforter, a counselor. And, and scripture teaches that the spirit of God, it is the spirit that helps us in our weakness. when We don't know how to pray that the spirit of God prays in and through us. And so as we pray in the spirit, and that's just this incredible opportunity to be built up in our faith, that that leads to keeping ourselves in the love of God. So if we look at the gospel and we engage in the, in the uh, spiritual prayer life that God has in mind for our lives, as we do that, what does that do? It roots and keeps us in the love of God. Now, if you've been traveling with us through Jude so far, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a second. Uh, I remember that we talked about that we are kept, right? That, that we are kept by God in God's love. So what does it mean that we should keep ourselves in the love of God if we're like, kept by God? I think it's a fair question. And as we think about it, uh, it's this, this understanding that, yes, we are kept by God, by his power. Jesus says, uh, no one shall take, me, uh, take them from my hand, right? So there's, there's this sense that nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? And at the same time, there's this invitation to keep ourselves in the love of God. And what, what we're what we're dealing with here in this space is that we experience a reality that is true because of the gospel. Uh, like we become God's children when we put our trust in Jesus and there's nothing that can change that. 
So positionally, we're his children, we're his kids. And there's nothing that can change that. But relationally, there's a lot that we can do to engage with God or to not engage with God, right? And so what it means to keep ourselves in the love of God is, is, is talking about an, an opportunity to participate and engage in the love of God through seeing the gospel for what it is, through prayer, through the disciplines of the faith. That's what these are about. They're not to earn anything or to gain anything that we don't already have. So positionally, nothing changes. Like we're still sons and daughters if we put our trust in Jesus for salvation. But experientially, when we engage with God, we keep ourselves reminding ourselves of his love for us every single day. Jesus gave us the model for this. uh, And he talked about what it means to abide in him. John chapter 15, he says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. This idea of connecting, being connected to the vine, and he's the vine, we're the branches, and we bear fruit from abiding with him is our participation in the relationship that he has freely given to us in Christ Jesus. And so there's this kind of both and that's going on, that we are both kept by God and there's nothing we can do to change that. And yet we keep ourselves in the love of God in our experience by engaging with him. And so this is why when we talked about practically, Jude is gonna say, here's what it means to love God and love people in practical ways. This is what we're talking about, that, that we keep ourselves in the love of God by seeing the gospel for what it is. And that's so beautiful. And he continues by saying, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There is this like already not yet that we experience in the gospel that Jesus has already done everything that is necessary for our salvation. And we are promised an eternal life with him. And in many ways, that eternal life begins when we put our trust in Jesus, right? But yet at the same time, There is this expectant waiting for the fullness of what eternal life will mean when we no longer live on planet death. Um, We live in a world that is fallen and broken. And then there are all kinds of things in the world that we live in that are not according to the kingdom of God. Sickness and disease and poverty and death and all of the things that we see in the world. War and all of these things. Like That's not a part of God's kingdom. That's not a part of the way of Jesus. And, and yet we live in a place where Jesus has already come, lived, died, and resurrected and ascended. And he's promised to return. And we live in between the ascension and the return. And so while we're here, what do we do? We wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. But it's not like a passive waiting, like, I'm going to do nothing, you know. It's not a passive waiting. It is an active waiting and anticipation of the Lord. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, he's talking about the world that we currently live in. What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So that we have this this posture of participation where we recognize that if Jesus promised he's going to return, he's gonna return. And there's nothing I can do to change it. And yet, 
there is some participation that I have in hastening his return. Wow, what does that even mean? Well, that's probably the book of Revelation. Okay. But it is this participation in waiting. And, and that there's this, um, there's this beautiful interplay between uh, the already and the not yet that is, that is taking place. And it's beautiful. And as we seek to love people, verse 22, uh, Jude, Jude speaks to that. And he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. What is mercy? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve for our sin. Mercy is God giving us something better than we deserve for our sin. Mercy is, is God not giving us uh, the punishment not giving us all of the consequences, all of the results that our sin deserves. And, and he's saying in verse 22 that if we have received and waited for the mercy of the Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life, then what should we do? Have mercy on other people. For those of us who've experienced the goodness of God in the gospel, we ought to look to extend the goodness of God in the gospel to others. See, the trophy case is not just about enjoying the baseball for ourselves, right? That, that baseball, every time someone comes over to the house, what do you do? Come to my trophy room, you know? I've got this baseball. You'll never guess who it's signed by. She's awesome, right? Baby Ruth, Babe Ruth. And, and, and so mercy that has been received by us in salvation, it is natural for us to then want to share that with others. And what uh, Jude is saying here, uh, mercy on those who doubt, it's actually really profound because this word doubt, uh, which in Greek it's diakidnu, uh, it, is, uh, it is to separate oneself in a hostile spirit to oppose or strive with and dispute and contend with. And it's the same word used in Jude for disputed when Michael disputed with the devil. So this is not just like doubt in the sense of like, oh, I'm not sure. But it's like, uh, I doubt it. You know what I'm saying? It, it's a, a contentious doubt. It's somebody who says, you know what? I don't think what you believe is legit. And I'm kind of here to tell you about that. Or I'm here to prove that to you. Or I'm here to push back on what you're sharing with me. It's somebody who, who kind of aggressively doubts. And I think it's beautiful that Jude would call us to have mercy on those who aggressively doubt. And it's important for us to hear this, especially in the context of uh, the, the world that we live in here in Central Florida, especially with those that we interact with uh, on property, in our workplace. But it's so important for us to recognize that if mercy is missing in our evangelism, if we don't have mercy on those who doubt, right? If mercy is missing in our evangelism, then we fail to embody the Jesus that we're trying to introduce people to in the first place. And we really should not be surprised when opponents are turned away from the gospel. Right? Like, if mercy is missing in our evangelism, when mercy is a core component of the gospel, then we really shouldn't be surprised when people are turned away. And so as you think about having conversations with people who don't yet know Jesus, who are still doubting, remember that you are a person who needed mercy and you are a person who needs mercy and you are a person who will need mercy tomorrow. 
In fact, his mercies are new for us every morning. Great is his faithfulness because our faithfulness isn't great, right? And so it's so important for us to recognize that it is our duty and privilege to have mercy as we share who Jesus is with others. But it's important. It matters to engage with others who doubt. We can't just say, well, I hope they find their way to Jesus someday because I don't want to offend them, right? But instead, we come to them like friends who care about their plight, like these boys thinking about Smalls and what's going to happen when his stepdad comes home, right? They're like, this, I love this quote, listen to me, Smalls, this is a matter of life and death. Like this stuff matters. This is a matter of eternity. This is something that we should really, really consider that those who are in our spheres of influence who don't yet know Jesus, our opportunity is to show mercy to them and thereby saving others by snatching them out of the fire. We show others mercy. But we do so, verse 23, with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Mercy with fear. So we're not just flippantly saying like, oh, you know what? God's going to be fine with your sin. It'll be fine at the end. Like, don't worry about it. This is not cheap mercy, right? But this is the mercy that has cost the precious blood of Jesus. And there is an understanding that we all ought to have that the sin that has separated humanity from God caused the death of his son. And so the idea of eternal life is not something that we just gain because we just happen to luck out, right? No, we just happen to get in on the day that we, that we, we meet God face to face. He's in a good mood, so he lets us in. But, but this idea of eternal life or eternal death, is, it is an absolutely dependent reality that we put our trust in Jesus for salvation because there is no other forgiveness of sin outside of Christ. And so for us to recognize that, we ought to have mercy on others, but we do so with fear, recognizing that the stakes are really high. But remember that this mercy that we're extending to people is mercy that first we have had to receive. So we never extend this, this uh, fear-filled mercy to people assuming that we don't need it as well. There's this uh, saying kind of that's floated around Christianity for a lot of years, love the sinner, hate the sin. Have you ever heard that saying? And I don't know that that's the most helpful saying. Uh, there's a pastor, and I think he said it much, 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 much better. And I think that this captures the sentiment of what Jude is saying. But he says, love the sinner and hate your own sin. Okay, so I got a fan of that right there. But just think about that. There's this sentiment out there in Christianity that says like, oh, love the sinner, hate the sin. But what that fails to recognize is that we are somehow outside of that reality of sin, that their sin is worse than my sin, that I can love the sinner and I can hate their sin. But what, what really scripture is calling us to is to actually hate the garment stained by our flesh. <laughs> like you, you think about the story of the prodigal son, right? Who goes off to a far country to spend the father's inheritance on living everything that the world could offer. And, and this son spends all of his time 
engaging in all of the pleasures of the world and ends up in a pigsty. And for a Jewish person, that's about as defiled as you can be. And coming back to the father, fully defiled, having garments fully stained by the flesh, fully stained by his sinful desire. He comes back to the father and what does the father do? He wraps a robe of righteousness around his son. He puts his, his ring on, on his finger. He slaughters the calf and he throws a party and says, my son who was lost is now found. Could you imagine in that moment if the son was like, thanks pops, you know, but I really like my own garments. I really like my own clothes. Thank you, I'm gonna keep those myself. And for us tonight, I just want us to consider here today that we, when we experience the mercy of God, when we experience the mercy of God and its transforming nature in our lives, it positions us so much more effectively to share the mercy of God with others when we're sharing it from the vantage point of our own need for mercy. So tonight, what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time together to consider our need for mercy. When we think about placing this baseball back up on the, on the trophy shelf where it belongs, part of that is recognizing our need for the gospel. So I want us to take just a moment together. And what we're going to do is I'm just going to have everybody stand. And you guys can go ahead and stand. And as you do, what we're going to do is each one of us, we're going to confess our worst ever sins publicly, just one at a time. So it's just starting here with Connor, and then we're just going to go around the room. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Emily is getting really nervous back there. Um, but you know, there is something about looking at our lives with some seriousness and saying, God, I need your mercy. So tonight, rather than what I just said, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a little bit of time together to just publicly confess our need for God. Now, uh, there's a scripture that beautifully leads us into this. And so we're going to read this scripture together. And it's Psalm 51. It's after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and, and Nathan the prophet calls him out on his sin. And David realized like, man, like, I don't want to live that way. Like, I don't want to be that guy. Like, I, I, he was broken by his own sin. And rather than running away from God because he'd been caught, he ran to God. And this is why God calls David a man after his own heart. Not because he had it all together. Not because he did it right. Anybody here have it all together or done it all right? None of us. But the reason why David was a man after God's own heart is because when he was caught in his sin, he ran to God, not away from God. And so there's this thing that God has given to us called confession. Scripture says that when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scripture says that when we confess our sins one to another, that we're healed. That there is a healing reality that takes place when we are brave enough and bold enough to confess that we're in need of Jesus together. So I'm gonna pray. And as I'm praying, I just wanna ask you to consider where do you need mercy today? Like what is going on in your heart? What is going on in your life today that you just need God's mercy to meet you where you're at? 
Maybe it's a sin that you just cannot get rid of. Maybe it's a, 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 a shortcoming that you just cannot uh, get past. Maybe it is something that has been done to you that haunts you day after day after day and that you live in the trauma of that reality. There could be a thousand things that could come to your heart and mind. But tonight, I just want to invite you to bring that thing to God. We're not going to say it publicly. So don't worry. He knows our thoughts. You can bring it to him tonight. So God, I just come before you tonight and I lift each and every one of my brothers and sisters up to you. God, I, um, I thank you that you've given us just an opportunity together to confess our need for you. So God, I pray that you tonight would meet us where we are at with mercy. I pray that you would show us a mercy that we do not deserve tonight. And God, we trust that you are gonna do a work that only you can do in our midst so that we can experience your mercy and then extend your mercy to others that we meet on a daily basis. God, I just pray that tonight, whatever it is that we're walking through, that we would be honest with you in this space and as we confess together, God, uh, that you would extend your mercy to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.